Good morning. My name is Shelly, and I get to be part of the women's ministry here at Calvary. I get to read the scripture this morning. It's James 2, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith but my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For, the, for as the body <clears throat> apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. I'm usually at the Erie campus, but I have roles that are at all three campuses as well. And so it's a blessing to be here this morning and to open the Word of God together. If you have your journals, you can open them up to, oh, let's see, let's, let me get that going. Uh, you can open them up to James 2. And we're going to be in verses 14 to 26. So James 2, 14 to 26. So last week we were in the first part of James 2. And this week we are um, coming to the second part and finishing off that chapter, which we, you just heard read. And this is one of the passages in Scripture that is uh, it's a more difficult passage. And so I hope you're ready and have your Bibles open or Bible in front of you. If there's <clears throat> one of those you can grab and look at. One of the problems that we face in our world is the question of how, knowing how can I know if something is true or genuine? I'm guessing you've faced this problem in the last couple of years. Maybe you'll get a piece of information, a piece of news, and you'll wonder, is that true? Is that real? Is that genuine? Is that actually what's going on? Uh, there's a lot of misinformation. At times we're unsure and we're constantly wanting to know what is true. If you ever uh, get the privilege of paying with a $100 bill, I'm guessing the person behind the counter, the first thing they're going to do is look at it, examine it, see if it's true and genuine. Because it's important. We want to know what's true and what's genuine. It shapes the way that we live our lives. And in the book of James, one of the things that James is trying to do is help us know when is faith genuine faith? When is faith true and genuine faith? And the book of James is a book all about how we live out the Christian life. How do we live as Christians? How do we endure in the midst of difficulties? How do we count it as joy when we face a trial? 
How do we persevere and seek wisdom from God in the midst of tribulations? How do we love and care for the community of God's people? How do we show care for the orphans and the widows, those who are um, in need? And how do we not show favoritism, which is what Perry uh, spoke about last week? How do we keep ourselves from favoritism, favoring some people in the church as on this level and some people on this, but seeing all of us as equal, valuable, precious because of who God has made us to be and through Christ, um, being, being a church that values one another. And so this is what the book of James is about. It's a book about practical faith lived out. And the question we're going to be particularly looking at this morning is, how can you know when faith is true and genuine? This seems to be something that James wants us to examine in ourselves, to examine our own faith, to do a little bit of a diagnostic, to, to look in and say, am I really living out genuine faith? Or am I just kind of being someone who hears the word of God, but it just kind of washes off of me like water and it doesn't stay? Because one of the dangers that James actually warns us against in the book of James is being someone who's deceived. Someone who hears the word of God, but does not do it. The way you can think about diagnosing your faith is kind of like going to the mechanic. I'm absolutely terrible with cars. If you want windshield wiper fluid in your car, I can help you with that. Uh, usually there's just a little blue cap and you open it and you pour it in there. But beyond that, I don't have much confidence with cars. And so one of the things I've always had to do is have someone who I know is good with a car and is a good mechanic. So I have a mechanic, Pat Patrick. He, you, some of you may know him because he's involved at Calvary, uh, predominantly at the Boulder campus. But he is a mechanic in Erie, and I'll take my car to him. And sometimes I'll have a light that's off, something that's going on, something's driving weird. And my confidence in my car just begins to go down. So I'm wondering, this, this thing's about 15 years old. I don't know what's going on here. And so I bring it into the mechanic. I bring it into Pat, and I just tell him, do whatever you need to do. Take care of it. Uh, and sometimes he'll tell me, well, it's going to be a little bit expensive. And then he gives you know, a great deal on whatever work he's doing. Uh, you think it's going to be hundreds of dollars, and it's a few bucks or something like that. But the point of that is, when I bring that car in, my confidence is like this. But getting the diagnostics, getting it tested, I walk out with confidence. And the point is same here. As we go into a passage that's talking about faith and works, it's talking about what is true and genuine faith. Our hope, the desire for today, is that each of us would walk away with confidence. Because the point of testing is that you can know if there's a problem, what do I do? Is there hope? And the answer is yes, there is hope. If you find yourself lacking in works, if you find yourself lacking in faith, there is hope. And we're going to look at that today as we examine ourselves. But if you diagnose problems, there's hope. There's, there's a possibility of change. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so our hope today is that there would either be assurance and encouragement as we examine our faith, or in areas where we find ourselves lacking, that we would go to Christ and find strength and find the ability to strengthen our faith so that we can endure in the works that he has for us. So here's how we're going to go through this passage in James 2. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at first, what is fake faith? The type of faith that James is looking at and saying, this is not what true faith is. We're going to look at what is fake faith. Then we're going to look at what does true faith look like. And then finally, we're going to ask ourselves, how, how do we do this examination of ourselves and move forward in active faith? So first, what is fake faith? What's true faith? Then how do we move forward in active faith? 
And so we're going to begin by looking at fake faith, starting in verse 14. Now, I'm going to use the term fake faith, not because James does it in the passage. He doesn't use that term. But because I think James is going to make it really clear that the type of faith that he's talking about here as we begin this passage is a faith that is really not faith. It's no faith at all. And so starting in verse 14, this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And as we're going to be marking this up a bit, you could follow along if you'd like in marking things up, but I'm going to go ahead and circle the word that faith. Because James is pointing us right here to a certain type of faith that he's saying this faith will not save someone. But there's a specific faith, that faith, this faith that he's talking about that will not save someone. And we're going to look at what is this faith that does not save now, it's clear throughout Scripture that we're saved by faith, and I think that James is actually just showing us more assurance of that, that in this passage, he's talking about a certain type of faith. He doesn't say, can those works save someone? He's pointing to faith as something that would save. Uh, there's another passage, you could think of Romans 3.28. If you want just a really clear, short, concise passage on the fact that we're saved by faith, another one would be Romans 3.28 that says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. And I don't think James is going to be contradicting anything that we see spoken in the rest of Scripture here, but I think what he's going to do is he's going to clarify, what is this faith that saves? What is true saving faith? We're saved by faith, but what is true faith? And what is fake faith? And James is going to give us really three insights into what this fake faith looks like. This faith he's talking about right here that cannot save someone. And he's going to tell us that it's a faith that's dead. Faith that's dead. He's going to show us that in verse 17. Then he's going to show us that it's a faith that's demonic, meaning even the demons can have this type of faith. And then finally, he's going to show us that this is a faith that's useless. It doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. I got this outline actually my senior year of high school and I was working on a Bible study on this passage and it was from Pastor John Piper. And so if the dead demonic useless was how that was broken apart and I found this helpful for the last nine, 10 years. And so if you, if you find this um, outline helpful of what he's talking about, it's dead faith, it's demonic faith, it's useless faith. And so we're looking verse 15 to 17 to first see that this is a faith that is dead. There's no faith at all. Verse 15, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we're going to underline here this, this idea of faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, faith by itself and dead are the things I'm going to underline there. James is talking about a type of faith that is not a living faith, but is a dead faith. And the example he gives is there's someone in need of food and clothing. He's, the communities he's writing to likely have a decent amount of discrepancy between those who are rich perhaps who own land and things like that, and those who are poorer. And he's just simply making the point, hey, if there's someone in your community, if there's someone in your church body that comes to you and they're in need of food and clothing, if you just say, go, be, be filled, be warm, 
without providing a meal. He's like, what's the point of that? If you have a meal, why not give, or if you have food, why not give them a meal? Why not give them a tangible blessing? He's saying those are kind of empty words that you're using to negate your responsibility to actually care for your family, your family in the church. So James is pushing back against that idea, and he's saying this is what faith without works is like. It gives lip service to this idea of following God, but he's saying, but internally, on the inside, this is no faith at all. It's actually a faith that's dead. So the first thing that James tells us is that this type of faith is dead. It doesn't actually do anything. As you keep going in verses 18 to 20, James tells us that this is the type of faith that even demons can have as well. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Then he says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you by faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the next thing we're going to underline is here, that even the demons believe and shudder. So not only is this faith a dead faith, but it's a faith that even the demons can have. James starts this off by saying, you have faith and I have works. And the idea is that there's someone who's coming to him and saying something like this. Hey, James, that's great. You have your works. I have my faith to each his own, right? We, we, you, have your, you have your works. I have my faith. And James is saying, okay, well, show me your faith without any works. Can you demonstrate your faith to me apart from your works? I'll show you my faith by my works. And it's just a very clear idea that we know true faith when we see it. You, you could even think about what Jesus says in John 13, 34 to 35. This is after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. And then he tells his disciples, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The way that the, the love and the faith of Christians is actually supposed to be demonstrated. Even the way that God demonstrates his love for us, Romans 5, 8 says that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. There's an active demonstration of love that's from God to us. And the, the idea here is that faith is not something that just sits dormant, but it's something to be lived out. And he's saying that even the, even the demons can believe that something is true, have this sort of intellectual assent. And notice what James says to them. He says, you know, you believe that God is one. Great, that's good. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. When he uses that term, uh, God is one, this is likely echoing something called the Shema in uh, the scriptures, which is, comes from Deuteronomy 6. And the Shema is basically the, one of the basic tenets of Judaism. If you were a Jew, you would know this. You would say, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6, or 4 to 5, it would be, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is the basic confession. Your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so James is saying something like this. You believe correct, true, orthodox things about who God is. That's great. You might even know the basic confession of your faith and you believe that and you speak that. But, he, but he's pushing back and saying, do you really believe? Or are you just giving lip service to this idea? He's saying even the demons believe. Even the demons believe. But the demons, when they believe, they also shudder. There's at least some fear that's evoked. And perhaps one danger is that we could just have this intellectual sense. Yeah, okay, God exists. Jesus is the Lord. 
but do we really believe? Does it, does it evoke something in us? And what James is trying to get us to is a faith that moves beyond the faith of a demon, that moves beyond intellectual assent into actually knowing and loving and experiencing life with God. He doesn't want us to settle for something less. He doesn't want us to think that it's merely about knowing truths about God, but actually about knowing God himself. Not just a true or false test, but a life of faith that's lived out through the Christian, moving beyond the faith of demons. And so he tells us that this is a faith that cannot save, which is dead and demonic. Even the demons can have this type of faith. And finally, he shows us that this faith is useless in verse 20. He says this, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So this is the last one we could underline. It's useless. This is the type of faith that doesn't work. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't have a use. And I think what we can take away from all these is, is there's a sense of warning that James is giving us. There's a sense of warning that it's possible to be in the church. It's possible to be in a community of people who believe. It's possible to be, perhaps, take your country or whatever it might be, some, some part of your life and upbringing and think, yeah, I'm part of this um, community. I believe this. But he's actually warning us to think and consider, do we actually believe in our hearts? Are we actually living out a type of faith or are we just merely deceiving ourselves? And this is what he's, he's pushing us to examine and to consider. And so the faith that James talks about that doesn't save is, is, is really no faith at all. It's a faith that's dead. It's a faith that's demonic. Even the demons can have it. It's a faith that's useless, that doesn't do anything. The way I think about the way that James is using this word fake is kind of, kind of like this. It's a fake tree. It's a fake tree. Is it a tree? On one hand, you'd say, yes, it has the form of a tree, but it's not actually a tree. So imagine this for a moment. Imagine if you wanted to plant a couple trees in your yard and you wanted to get two fruit-bearing apple trees. And so you go outside and you plant two seeds in the ground and you come back five years later and you look at those trees and you examine them and you say, okay, how are they doing? And you see that one tree is blossoming and it's full of fruit and there's fruit on the ground next to it. It's, it's fruit everywhere. It's, it's doing well. It's in season. But then you look to the other tree and you realize that there's just nothing. There's just the dirt on the ground. That never, it never took root, and there's no tree there. And so you're frustrated because you wanted two trees, not one tree. And so you go and you find an artificial tree, and you dig up the ground, and you plant that in the ground. And you think, okay, well, great, now I have my two trees, and this is going to be good. And you come back a year later, and again, it's in season, and you see one of the trees is bursting with fruit, and the other tree is just empty. It looks the same way as it did last year. Now, on the surface, you might think, what, what is going on? Why is there no tree coming from the, or there's no fruit coming from this tree? But when you examine it, you realize it's a pretty ridiculous thing to be upset about. You know, it's not actually a tree. It looks like a tree, it has the form of a tree, it's next to a tree, but it's not a tree. You wouldn't expect it to bear fruit. Now, the lack of fruit on the tree isn't really the problem either. Because it's not like you just need to go and motivate that tree to work harder to produce fruit and say, you can do it, tree. You got this. I believe in you. Keep working. You can do it. Do some, do some work, tree, and you'll bear some fruit. That's not how you would approach that. Because you know that the problem is it is not itself a tree. 
has the form of a tree, but it's no tree at all. Now, here's where this is significant for us. In our own lives, if we find ourselves lacking in fruit, the answer is not merely to try harder. They go, okay, I'm just going to produce it now. I'm just going to bring about fruit in my life. I'm going to love people. I'm going to care for people. I'm going to love God. I'm going to feel, feel more. I'm, I'm going to work harder to do all these things. We actually need to examine the problem on a much more internal level. God is actually about the heart, and he's about something much more internal than just um, us trying to produce fruit on our own. He's about changing us from the inside out so that we produce fruit for him, so that we live for him. And the reality is that we will no more be able to produce fruit for God apart from faith in Christ than a fake tree will be able to produce fruit. We need to look at what the problem is, but we need to understand that this issue on the outside of a lack of works is actually probably pointing to something much deeper that's going on in the heart and that's internal. And so if we find ourselves lacking, we're going to talk about this some more at the end, but if we find ourselves lacking, the answer is not merely just more grit, more will, more effort, but it's probably actually to do some work in our own hearts with God and just ask God, what's going on? Do I really know you? Have I been a tree that's in an orchard? And I've seen fruit around me, and I've seen trees around me, but have I actually known you? Have I experienced life with you? Have you been working in my life? Or have I been deceived? And the good thing is that if we find ourselves there, there is still hope because Christ is present with us today. So we do that diagnostic. So that's what fake faith is. It's it's dead, it's, it's demonic, even demons can have it, it's useless. But then we're going to talk about what does is, what is true faith look like? And, and we're given two examples of true faith from James in this uh, chapter. He gives us the example of Abraham and of Rahab. And so first let's look at Abraham. So this is positively what does true faith look like? Verse 21, picking up where we left off, says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. This passage, we're just going to underline a few things. We're going to see that, we're going to underline that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And I think this is what James is going to mean when he talks in verse 21 about being justified by works. And so you could put a star or something positive to show that this is, this is what James is pushing us to, this type of faith. So the story that he gives is the story of Abraham, which is a really interesting story because of all the trials and all the difficulties, Abraham has one of the hardest tests in all of Scripture. Abraham was first called by God, and God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless every nation in the earth, every family of the earth, through you. But Abraham is 75 years old when he's called, and he's childless. And one of the big struggles that he and his wife go through throughout the story is this childlessness. They have these hopes and the promises of God, yet they have no child through which these promises are going to come about. And in Genesis 15, this is where something that's quoted, Genesis 15, God takes Abraham out, and he says, you know, look at the stars of the heaven, so shall your offspring be. And he promises him, Abraham, one of your own sons is going to receive this promise that I'm giving to you. 
Then the story goes on, and Isaac comes. And Isaac grows, and once he's older, a number of years older, God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to offer him to me on an altar. So it becomes one of the greatest trials in Scripture, one of the most perplexing moments in all of Scripture. And Abraham goes, he follows God's word, and God keeps him from sacrificing his son. And this is one of the great tests of Abraham's life. Now, what's really fascinating is this, that the words that James uses in verse 23, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, occur at that moment when he's looking up at the stars. It occurs in Genesis 15. And so it says there that God considers Abraham righteous, or you could say justified before him. That Abraham is right before God, he has faith, and that uh, he is right in God's eyes. He's justified, he's righteous. But the interesting thing is that in verse 21, James is saying, wasn't Abraham justified, made righteous before God, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So you kind of have to ask the question, which is it? Genesis 22 is when Abraham offers up Isaac. Is, is Abraham righteous in Genesis 15 when he believes God? Or is he righteous in, verse, or in Genesis 22 when he offers up his son Isaac on the altar? And I think the answer is that it's clearly that God, he is righteous before God in Genesis 15 because the scripture just tells us he believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. But look at the way that James is clarifying what he means by this. He says, was not our Abraham our father justified by works? But then in verse 22, he tells us what he means by that. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and his faith was completed by his works. He's pointing to the idea that his faith was something that was active and completed. It was brought to the end. It was brought to the fulfillment of what it was intended to do when Abraham offered up his son Isaac on the altar. I mean, imagine what would have happened if Abraham wasn't willing to go through with it. What doubt would that have casted on his faith? He said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then you see throughout his life an inability to trust God and his word. This, James is saying this is what it means for him to have true faith. It was active. It was active and it was brought to its fulfillment, its end, its completion as he actually lived out that faith. Now, Abraham's story is also really interesting because Abraham's highs and lows in his own story are, are pretty intense. I mean, there's one point when Abraham and his wife try and have a child through another woman. And so Abraham's story is by no means a story of a perfect character. It's a story of a man who struggles for years wondering about the fulfillment of God's promises. But what you see is that through that perseverance and to the end, he, he does believe and trust in the promise and the word of God. Not as a perfect man, but someone who lives out true faith and takes a risk for the sake of his faith. And there might be something encouraging for us in that. Because this is not a, a story of a man who just struggles for one or two days with a crisis of faith, but who struggles for much of his life wondering, uh, how, how is God's word actually going to come through? Things don't seem like I expected that they would be right now, but how is God's word actually going to come true? Now, one of the verses that's more tricky as you go through this is verse 24. It says this, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And sometimes people have taken this verse and they, they've said, man, James is saying we're, we're made right with God through our works, but 
someone else in the scripture, Paul, seems to talk very differently than James talks. And so some people have talked about how there's this things that James says, and I'll show this in a moment, things that James says that we're justified by works, but then Paul over here is saying we're justified by faith. Some people have said, well, see, like they contradict one another. They don't even agree. They own, the, their scriptures don't even agree with themselves. One author says one thing, another author says another thing. Um, and just to give you an insight into this, this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and maybe you can feel it, feel the argument as you hear it. This is what J, uh, Paul says in one of his letters, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's saying it's not a result of works. And then here James in verse 24 is saying, you see the person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So how do you respond to that? Someone would say to you, James and Paul, they just don't agree. Even the scriptures don't agree on how we're saved. I think it would be important to keep reading in Ephesians too. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I think, is one of the clearest verses in all of Scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. But then verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when you look at both James and Paul, I, I think that this is, this is what you could say. They both agree that we're saved by faith. Can that faith save you? No. But can such a, is there a faith that can save? I think James' answer would be absolutely. A faith that's true, that's active along with works, that's brought to its end by works, a, a true, genuine faith that will result in works. And I think Paul would agree with that, that true faith has works. The way you can think about it is like this, that James and Paul are kind of standing back to back, and they're fighting off two false beliefs. Paul is absolutely adamant that there is no other way to be saved than through faith in Christ alone. He even will go so far as to say, if anyone preaches to you another gospel, let them be accursed. He's adamant. There's no other gospel. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. He's trying to make very clear that the way into God's kingdom is by faith alone. You cannot add to that by your works. It is impossible. But James seems to be fighting back to back with him, and he's fighting off another false belief, another heresy, you could call it. And the thing that he is fighting tooth and nail to make sure is understood is that true faith, true faith will not be divorced from works, that true faith will not be alone, that it will be active along with works. That the idea of saying, I believe that Jesus is Lord, and then living your life completely unimpacted for the rest of it, He's saying that is not faith. So they're fighting back to back. Paul making sure that we know that the way in which we enter God's kingdom is through faith alone. And James making sure that we know that works are actually going to accompany. They're going to follow from true and genuine saving faith. The way that one reformer said it, John Calvin, is this. He says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies. So it's faith alone which makes you right before God. And yet... The faith which justifies is not alone. The faith which justifies is not alone. And what he's saying by that is that faith is going to have works with it. Those are going to result. Those are going to come in the, as a result of it. Just in the same way that you think of a tree. A, tree is go, a good tree is going to bear good fruit. 
And you don't want to confuse the faith with the works, but it's also to know that the true good works will follow from faith. And James gives us another example of what this faith looks like lived out in verse 25. He says this, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, I wish we could talk more about this story because it's an incredible story, but here's the basic details you need to know. Rahab's a prostitute who lives in a land called Jericho. And God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, send some spies into that land and Rahab hosts them and keeps those spies safe from the king of Jericho who's seeking and inquiring and looking for them. So she protects their lives and she becomes joined to God's family by faith. Now, some people have wondered, why was Rahab, the prostitute, James go to for an example of faith? When you have Abraham, who's the patriarch, he's, he's a great example in the story of faith, and most people would agree, yeah, Abraham's a good guy. Father Abraham had many sons. You know, you learn about him from a young age. He's a great guy. He, even in his line comes Jesus. But Rahab? Why would you go to a Gentile prostitute to show us that faith must be accompanied by works? Why would you go there? Now, her story is actually incredible, and I think her example of faith is incredible. She, she renounces her whole life, her whole city, in order to trust God in his promises. And actually, Jesus also comes through the line of Rahab. She's the great, 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 go on for a while, grandmother of Jesus himself. And so she's joined to the promises of God by faith. And so she's absolutely a great example. And perhaps it's because of that. We don't know exactly why James chooses her, but here's an encouragement I think that we can find from it. Even Rahab, someone whose life was defined by sin before uh, coming to know Christ, even Rahab was brought into the family. She was made right with God and she risks her life and shows that through her life that she has faith. And this, at the very least, keeps us from making things into an equation of your good versus your bad. Just Rahab and Abraham don't fit into that idea that if your good outweighs your bad, then you'll be right with God. It's very clear that their faith is put on display through their works. But even this idea of being saved by grace, it is by grace that Rahab, it is by grace that Abraham enter in. And they live out this faith. And so what does God desire from us? God desires our faith. He desires our hearts. He desires for us to risk and trust him. And from the prostitute Rahab to the patriarch Abraham, shows that the way is through trusting in his word and living consistently with that. So how do we then take this, what James is calling us to, this, this life of faith, this life of trusting, and examine ourselves so just to examine ourselves, it's helpful to think of the examples that James uses. He uses the example of uh, loving and caring for people in need. He uses Abraham's faith as an example, and he uses Rahab's faith. I think there's a few questions we can use to examine ourselves. One of them would just be, you know, do, do I have a love and care for God's people? One of the things that James uses or talks about over and over, this love for the, care for the orphans and the widows, caring for a brother or sister in need. Do I have a love for God's people? God's given us time and talents and treasures, as some have said. How are those used for the people who are in need in our community, and the, the people of God who maybe are overlooked? 
Do we, have, do we have a love for those who God's put in our lives? We could also ask the question, you know, are, are there areas where God is leading me to take risks for his kingdom? Are there areas where God is convicting my heart? How am I responding to that? Am I open to that? Am I open to walking with God into these challenges and these difficulties? Am I open to doing what he might be leading me to do, either as you listen to his word or as you consider the circumstances of your life and what it would look like for you to risk for the kingdom of God? Are there things that God's growing in you? Is he growing love and joy and peace and patience and the fruit of the spirit in your life? could be a really helpful confirmation that God is at work. Maybe things feel fruitless in some areas of your life, but you see that God is just at work working on your patience. That, that could be a sign that God is at work in your life. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. Rahab and Abraham, like I said, are, are examples that we're not um, going to be perfect, and yet their faith is strong. And I think what God desires of us is he really desires our heart. This doesn't mean that, we're living out, that living out faith will be simple and clear. It might be years of testing and difficulty that we walk through in our challenges of faith. Not a simple quick fix that you get done with by the end of the day, but God's testing for you might be going on throughout the duration of years. And even just to be okay with that, knowing that, that that's not indictment on you as a person, if you're going through challenges and continuing to trust God in the midst of that, so what do we do if we find ourselves lacking? We're not hopeless. The answer is not, like we said, just to merely try and produce fruit on your own strength. The answer is actually that we acknowledge our need for Christ, and we go to him. We don't turn inward towards self-reliance, but we actually acknowledge the one who is able to produce fruit in us. We realize our need for Jesus. And what we can be encouraged and assured of is that as we go to him, we can be assured of our salvation. That if we go to Christ, if we believe in him, if we trust in him, our salvation is secure. And we can also find strength to endure through the trials and difficulties and challenges that we face on a day-to-day -day basis. And that we're facing today, like James talks about in the book of James, the various trials that we are encountering. And today we're going to be taking communion. And what we're reminded of in communion is the total sufficiency and the total ability of Christ to save his people, to save us from our sins, and to give us strength to endure through every trial and temptation of life. It's through the life of Christ, through his life and death and resurrection and his ministry, which actually continues today, that we can find strength to endure in the Christian life. We find ourselves lacking, we find ourselves in need, that's where we turn. And I hope, hope that as you go to communion today that you find this as an area that really does strengthen your faith, gives you the strength to endure. Hebrews 7.25 is, is such an incredible verse about the continuing work of Jesus to save his people. The continuing work that Jesus is doing right now to save his people. And it says this, Consequently, he, being Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as we go to communion today, that's the verse I want us to remember, that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. Whatever challenges, whatever difficulties we might be going through, whatever uh, lack we might find in ourselves, we find the strength, we find the hope as we go to Christ. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you. Pray for any 
one who is struggling right now in faith, um, even just uncertain of certain aspects of their life and faith, I pray that you'd give us the wisdom, the joy, the peace, the confidence that comes through trusting in Christ. Pray that as we take communion this morning, it'd be a reminder of your gospel, that you love us, Lord. You love sinners. You love people who are in need. And I pray that you would embolden us through this to take great risks for your kingdom. Pray that the stories of Abraham and Rahab um, would go down in history in our minds and our hearts as great stories of faith, but that we would also walk in each story that you've given us to live out, Lord. Each, each part and um, each part of our lives would be dedicated to you and that we would risk for your kingdom and we'd see that your work continues through your people today. So strengthen us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.